0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Fuds on Film podcast. I'm Scott, and joining me today is Drew. Hello. Right, uh, so Robert Ludlum is the subject of today's uh, extravaganza, and Ludlum was a prolific author of primarily Cold War espionage thrillers, and so in a way it's surprising that so few of his works made their way into cinema screens, and the vast bulk of those were part of the Jason Bourne imbroglio. Um, in this episode, for no other reason than a fondness for espionage bunkum and baroque titling, we are skipping over the various TV miniseries and taking a look at two earlier adaptations, 1983's The Osterman Weekend, and 1985's the Holcroft Covenant. And we will start with that there, Holcroft Covenant. Drew, what's that about? Uh,
1: just before I go on to that, Scott, can I just ask, had you ever read a Robert Ludlum novel? No. no. No, neither have I. Um, I've had one for a while, The Bourne Supremacy, I think. Hmm. Or maybe the Ultimatum, it came with one of the Bourne films in Virgin Megastore. Right. Um, that, that's dating, what it and me. Uh, <laughs> but yeah... Um, I don't think I'll ever bother reading him in the future now, but um, <laughs> we'll get on to that. But it, it, I was wondering whether that would explain anything. <laughs> uh, yes. So, Michael Caine plays New York architect Noel Holcroft, uh, and kind of like the Swarm, <laughs> where it's like, mm. I've been American for this many years now. Um, <laughs> Brad Crane. Oh, God. <laughs> um <laughs> At least no Hawkeff's a believable cartoon for Michael Caine here. Uh yes, it, it it great pains to point out that he is a naturalized American citizen. Um and I
0: don't know why they did it because they said he he fleed that he, he went from Germany when he was like one or two or something like that. So it in no way explains the fact that he sounds like Michael Caine as he always does. Yes. <laughs> I'm definitely from New York. I'm going to complain about the traffic, so you think it's authentic. I'm not buying it. Yeah. <laughs> And completely unnecessary to the plot, anyway, but <laughs>
1: and also done at least two times, if not three. Hmm. Um <laughs> Yes, anyway. Uh Kane plays New York architect Noah Holcroft, a simpleton in this film written by simpletons for simpletons. After an entirely unnecessary opening in the last days of the Second World War in Germany, in which we see three Nazi officers talk about a pact they are making for the benefit of their sons before all being shot by one of the group, Holcroft is contacted by Michael Lonsdale's Swiss banker, Ernest Manfredi, who asked him to come to Geneva. Lonsdale's character, I feel I should point out, works for La Grande Banque de Genève. Now, things do work differently in other languages. For example, Grand Prix may sound somewhat exotic in English, but does of course mean simply big prize in French. But in this case, I think the Big Bank of Geneva is a pretty good indicator of the quality of writing on display here. Manfredi arranges to meet Holcroft on a ferry to deliver his important news, instead of inside the private, quiet and above all secure environments of a bank. You will understand once I tell you this information why we are not having this meeting at the bank, Manfredi tells Holcroft. Now, call me a cynic if you must... But is it because it's much harder to have people attempt to assassinate Holcroft immediately after your meeting if it's not if it's in a bank? <laughs> anyway, immediately after their meeting, some people attempt to assassinate Holcroft. This is foiled by another assassin, this one currently not minded to assassinate Holcroft, though Holcroft himself is oblivious to this because, as I've already stated, Holcroft is a simpleton. <laughs> The reason for the meeting, and the assassination attempt, is that Holcroft's father was one of the Nazi officers seen in the opening scene, who apparently had a change of heart and channelled millions of Reichsmarks out of the Wehrmacht into a Swiss bank, so that reparations could be made to the Third Reich's victims. This money, now in the amount of $4.5 billion, is said to be spent at Holcroft's direction, with the aid of the sons of the other two officers. Why this took the seemingly arbitrary time of 40 years to come into effect is not explained, but suddenly there's a ticking clock in the whole thing, with some people determined Holcroft should sign the legal document to take control of the fund, and some determined that he must not, though some of these seem to forget this later in the film. It also seems that this super-secret bank account is in fact known to pretty much everyone in the world, with the exception of Holcroft. So the film grinds along, with the entirely shocking revelation that the fanatical Nazis hadn't in fact had a change of heart, but wanted to create a new generation of fanatical Nazis, and that this money will enable this by means of a ridiculous plan spelled out to the world's media by a Holcroft who has, presumably, had the plot spelled out to him. (laughs) Equally shocking is that almost all of the other people involved are exactly what they seem, i.e. Nazis, even Gasp! The woman, who for some reason is called Helden, the German for heroes, maybe this is a name in other languages, but she's German, so heroes it is, and well, only at two points was I wrong about any revelation at all, and that's because I guessed Michael Lonsdale was in on it, and I thought it might turn out that the field marshal that we see earlier in the film was actually Noel's father, who we didn't actually see die. And well, neither would have been out of place here. You know what, Scott, actually, I tell a lie. It was three times I was wrong because I didn't predict the incest subplot because (laughs) why the hell would I? It's not actually written by a German after all (laughs) Sorry, um, for any German listeners that we might have I I hope you realise that's just a um, a running joke and not an actual condemnation of Germans (laughs) Um, It is garbage though, as opposed to the Osterman weekend, it's at least coherent garbage (laughs) though that's cold comfort indeed how much of that is the fault of screenwriters Edward Anhalt, George Axel or John Hopkins, or of director John Frankenheimer, I can't say. Though to be even-handed to my criticism, I suspect quite a bit. But my suspicion is that the greatest fault lies in the source novel. But, as um, mentioned at the beginning here, having not read it, I am not in a position to confirm or disconfirm that suspicion. Certainly my notes, of which I made many while watching this, consists of... Lots of whys and a considerable number of, oh, i going to have to change my notes here, Scott, uh, to, to keep it clean. Let, let's use the more um, to Irish version, feck offs. <laughs> oh, and not one single note I made was positive. I offer a select few now, in no particular order, as warning to you and catharsis to me. And... I readily said that this review isn't well written, but my excuse is that it partly doesn't need to be, as you can get a major motion picture made, directed by the director of possibly the best political thriller ever, even if you're writing the level of Dick and Jane. Let's begin with, why isn't Noel more belligerent or questioning? It's hard to know how we might act or react in many situations, but in many of the situations here I know damn well I wouldn't be taking this so meekly. On being expected to get on a horse... You do ride, don't you? You can piss off, can't you? An old man points a gun at no, who has done nothing wrong and is in this against his will. He wrests the gun from him, then doesn't do anything? I wouldn't use the gun, but you best be believing that if I'd had that gun pointed at me, the fecker who did it would now have a mouthful of teeth, wheelchair and age notwithstanding. Hanging from MI5? Well then, he must be. Why would he say it otherwise? Piss off! Show me some ID. It may turn out to be counterfeit, kind but at least they've made a cursory attempt at confirmation. Then I, saying, I love you, from old heroes McGee. After knowing Noel for about two days, seems cromulent. Oh, and feck off, do. Don't fly. The airport's not safe. Drive. That's better. But I'll take the train. Okay. Not a single question comes from Noel. Sorry, this has just become stream of consciousness now, but, well, I've written it and I'm going to read it, Damn it! Noel eventually tumbles to the fact that Heroes is also a rotter because she mentions a piece of information she could have only got from another conspirator. I didn't mention the dog. Really? Really? That? That ridiculous cliche? Now, to be fair, sometimes that works. But in a film where it has been made abundantly clear that the character has been drilled for her entire life to be careful use code words, to prepare weapons, to always be alert, to lie endlessly and convincingly. And that's how she tips herself up. Kindly remove yourself from this place and make love to yourself in a vigorous fashion. What is particularly irritating about this is that she actually was betrayed earlier, when it's pointed out to Noel that his pistol, given to him and assembled by Heldon, won't actually function as so the return spring is incorrectly fitted. This would have been quite a good way to do it. But no, Noel is a one-watt bulb at the best of times. In the final scene, Noel hands a working pistol to Heldon and then turns his back on her and waits for her to kill herself. Lucky he'd read the script, I guess, because what if she hadn't done that, Noel, you dim-witted pillock? Field Marshal, no wonder I was in love with you when I was a child. You always wear mad about uniforms. You're the same damn age. Actually, the woman's older. What are you doing, Philham? The main villain, Johan, is the son of a Nazi who has been on the run his whole life and used to live in, a, in uh, used to live in South America. Wake the feck up, Mikey boy! And finally, you will no doubt be exceedingly pleased to hear, uh, finally a scene from near the other beginning in which a bewildered Noel gets into a car in which they barely more than a stranger at this point held and is waiting for him, sitting for some reason in the passenger seat. Noel informs that he can't drive. To which she responds, Do you realise you're endangering our lives because of your incompetence? Get it up, yeah. Sideways. Uh, and this last, I extend to all involved with this piece of trash. So yeah, didn't like this, Scott.
0: I loved it I thought it was the best film that I've seen for this podcast um, unfortunately <laughs> that's not really saying an awful lot um, no I, I, I certainly don't really disagree with anything that you're saying there it, it, it didn't bother me as much because the author of the weekend had already pissed on the chips and um, this as you say at least at least holds together as a narrative in, in this kind of wider viewed from space kind of sense although again you never trust Hugo Drax when he comes to you with any kind of scheme it's not, not going to work out well for anyone Yes, it's just 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 not very good. Uh, I wasn't really thinking about it very much. It was not uh, almost trying not to pay attention to it, so it kind of washes over (laughs) me as a kind of just generic. Go here, do this, do that, do these kind of things, and Michael Caine has enough charisma to kind of get away with some of that. Oh, he does a get a
1: worthwhile thing in it,
0: Scott. Yeah, um, that's kind of a running theme between these two is it's actually got. There's a lot of talent involved in it, and it's just completely wasted. In This one, you know, Frank Nimmer, of course, is the director, and you're know, Kane, so you're normally dependable, and you know, both well, fine. I don't think I've actually got all that much complaints about the direction as such. It's just the materials subpar. Yeah, it it, it doesn't stand up to any scrutiny at all. Uh, I could kind of get behind it with, you know, Kane's character just being... you know, Holcroft being, you know, confused and just swept along with things and kind of going with it for a while. But that goes on for, like, 85 minutes and then for, for one brief shining minute... He knows everything somehow, suddenly yeah. for no, no explained reason, he despite said, having explained everything else in in minute detail that you really didn't need to. Um, this one, he's oh, by the way, I found this, this, this is to this. This is going to happen. This is going to happen, and then he's back to being a dummy again. It's it's, it's very convenient for the plot that that happened, but uh, yeah, it's not particularly convincing as a film.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's got no agency. He's just like yeah. bounced around in it, and but he's apparently got no willpower. You set him up as. As an architect, and, and people in all professions can be stupid in other ways too. But you know, an architect who suggested he's got to deal with like really difficult employers and stuff, and building contractors and things, and then but then he's just like, I oh know, um, I'm going to act like a little boy through the rest of the film. <clears throat> yes,
0: yeah, just because it's convenient Um and. As I say, you could have got away with that for a little while just out of general shock and just going along with it. But yeah, he, he, he just does not establish much of a character for himself at all, which is a shame because it's Michael Caine, you know. You um, could you could normally get some interesting things out of him, but yeah, not, not really this it, it didn't offend me uh, the same way, it <laughs> did you? But certainly I would never recommend anyone watch it. It's not particularly uh, good um, for this kind of thing. I mean, I suppose you can kind of see a bit of the kind of kind of similarity between it and what the Bourne films did, but the Bourne films did it much, much, much better. Um so plainly whether they've either worked off a better book of Ludlums or uh have edited it down to the bits that actually worked. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean it's, it's the same sort of, you know, go Go here, uncover this thing. Go there, go uncover that thing. Go here, cover that thing, and globe trotting and all that kind of stuff with chase scenes and all this. The, the general structure is the same, but the quality is so much different. Um, yeah, uh, sadly, not not one that is uh, worth excavating from the archives.
1: Yeah, I did um, the the Born Identity and the Born Films in particular were in my head, and it, it did make me wonder. Um, given that both of these are such stinking tollies of films. Um, <laughs> Whether like you know, it was a case of like the 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 source novel is not good, but like somebody's found a, a good idea and, and then expanded on mm. that. A lot of these books were bestsellers, but that doesn't really mean anything because so was the Da Vinci Code. So yeah, yeah, it's it concerns me that these books. um, I don't if if concern me, but I think maybe the the Born Identity was a bit of luck. <laughs>
0: Yes,
1: <laughs> um, I mean, because there's sort of vaguely interesting ideas in here. There's like, I mean, other, but other films have um, done sort of similar. stuff. Like there, but kind of like kind of some of the ideas have like resonance in other films, like the Boys from mm-hmm. And what this actually made me remind, uh, reminded me a lot of was um, the Odessa File. Yeah, yeah, but that's considerably better than this. Yes, <laughs> considerably better. Yeah, well, honestly, this was a miserable watch, but again, it, it was coherently miserable. Yes. <laughs> so I'm not sure if that's better or worse. Um, I didn't enjoy it more than the other film, but I disenjoyed it less. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, honestly, there was only one point in the entire film where I had any sort of entertainment at all, and it was entirely unrelated to the film, but I'm going to mention it here just because it amused me. Um, I, you know, it's got that I will often, I say, uh, you know, if, as I say, as you know, I say, I've done it for quite a few years now, but I very often have Spanish subtitles on anything I'm watching, just kind of mm. um, was always the idea was to brush up my Spanish and stuff and help my translation, and then as I got to at Spanish I, I was quite amused at like like, interesting thinking, like, if you've got, like, idioms and stuff, how you translate them to another language, you just do it directly, or is it like, a figure of speech and stuff, mm-hmm. and then, I'm getting better, like, so you can tell whether someone has done it by ear, generally, where, like, you work at what they probably misheard something as, or whether it was done from a script, Hmm. In this case, this was clearly done by ear, but I'm. Yeah, I, I was going to bet it, it amused me so much, and I, I couldn't work out what it could possibly um, have been. misheard as. in the the scene where he has to convince the field marshal that he's um, that he's not a Nazi, which he does um, by saying, "I'm not a Nazi." <laughs> okay, then. Michael Caine delivers the line. Neither am I going to f- uh, finance a redesigned Edsel. Okay, right. Mm. Which was translated to Spanish as neither am I going to finance any porno film. <laughs>
0: um,
1: and unlike anything else in the film, that provided me a good couple of minutes of entertainment trying to work out <laughs> what the hell that was meant to have been misheard as. <laughs> yeah, yes. I have no point there. Um, but just, you know, I, I just I hated the it, source. Why I went and that? Okay, I screwed up all the stuff that bothered me because I wanted to get it out. <laughs> And the, I think the most frustrating thing is this is from the director of the Manchurian candidate, yeah, this is one of so I was referring to and said possibly the best mm-hmm. political thriller ever made, uh certainly one of it you know, whether you can any, pick any particular one that's the best of anything but and then I mean, it's not even like it was the the end of his career, and you know he'd kind of lost the touch on because this is like a decade before he made Ronin, which is excellent. Yeah as we discussed mm-hmm. quite recently. Uh, so there's quite a lot of talent potentially going on here, but it's just completely uh, squandered. And to Michael Longdale's squanders, it almost always is.
0: Yeah, yeah. So as I kind of mentioned, there's, there, for both of these films, there's quite a lot of talent on paper. On paper, these seems like they, they would be quite yes. good ideas, but uh, yeah, the, the, the sad reality of it is there's not... An, It's not Um, unfolded
1: as I expected. Unfortunately, the the paper that's on does appear to have been toilet paper. um, Yes. Unfortunately. (laughs) Right. um, So, I'm I'm hoping Scott has something more coherent to say about our our next film. But given how incoherent the film itself is, I fear not. But maybe he'll surprise me. Scott, the, the Osterman weekend...
0: Yes, it's not really. coherence is definitely not a strong suit, but uh, yes, in the Osterman weekend, uh, CIA agent Lawrence Fawcett, played by John Hurt, is heartbroken after his wife is killed by the KGB, as far as he knows, and he then throws himself into his work, uncovering a ring of Soviet spies called Omega. CIA director Maxwell Danforth, played by Bert Lancaster, okays a scheme by Hurt to turn one, or all of them, while keeping stum about the fact that Danforth actually ordered Fassett's wife termination. Anyway, back to the scheme. As simply arresting the three-fingered Omega agents would tip off the KGB, Fassett intends to use the long-standing university-era friendship between them and the non-treason-suspected firebrand investigative journalist Rutger John Tanner to drive wedges between them and unravel the wider network. While Tanner cannot initially believe his buds were in fact budskies, seeing footage of meetings between suspicious characters and Dennis Hopper's Richard Tremaine, a plastic surgeon, Chris Randon's Joseph Cardone, a trader, and TV producer, Craig T. Nelson's Bernard Osterman, soon changes his mind, his only price being an interview with Maxwell Danforth when the dust settles. The location for this scheme is one of their upcoming periodic weekend reunions, this time at Tanner's Gaff, which facets stuffs to the gunnels with surveillance equipment like it's the house out of Night Trap, and aside. No C'est oh. bon. The alternative treatment of this material where the reunion occurs at Bernard Osterman's residence called Weekend at Bernie's is a radically different but more successful take on the subject matter. Uh, At any rate, between some probing questions and subtle interjections of eyebrow-raising pre-recorded material, combined with some prior hints dropped by the CIA that someone's onto them, it's hoped that one or more of the compromised agents will confine in Tanner and try and find a way out. At least in terms of raising questions, tempers and fists, this part of the plan seems to be going swimmingly. And, well, at this point, I have more than a few questions about the setup, but I was happy enough to go along with it, and I think it's a setup with a lot of potential. However, it's very much a script that seeks to keep you invested by not so much pulling rugs out from under you, but the entire foundation of the story. And I suppose, for the sake of good form, I should give you some spoiler warnings, but even for a near 30 year old film, uh, because I don't recommend this film very much, <laughs> I suppose it doesn't matter all that much, but, well, you've been warned. See, turns out that Fassett had indeed figured out that Danforth is responsible for his wife's death, and has concocted what has to be said as cinema's most needlessly elaborate, resource-intensive. Obviously prone to failure Could not work in a billion years Across a billion multiverse's scheme To get revenge I think By forcing Tanner to expose Danforth By holding Tanner's wife and kids hostage Which seems to have been something That Facet could have simply done At any point By just giving Tanner an interview Which it turns out He also does So what the hell the point Of any of the last 90 minutes of film Is Is a complete mystery to me And from having a poke around It was also to audiences at the time And also to the screenwriters And the actors and the director. At least I'm in good company. Uh, uh, speaking of, this was controversial director-slash-drunk Sam Peckinpah's last film, and is by all accounts a fairly ignominious accent, uh, albeit more of a continued ignominy than any kind of sudden drop-off. Um, a shame, as a large part of my reason for wanting to watch this pair was to have a butcher's at some of Sam Peckinpah's work, This he's another one of these directors whose work I feel I ought to be more familiar with. Mm. Um yeah, it's also a pretty solid cast, but one completely underserved by material that doesn't give anyone any real characterization to play with, although Hurt and, to a degree, Howard pull things along with goodwill earned from other, better films. There's other avenues for criticism, an awful lot of them, uh, like some overall flat direction and some surely dated-at-the-time attitudes to gratuitous female n- naturally nudity. But the very massive problem of a plot that cannot stop making you ask but... Why? Every two minutes past the half hour mark. It doesn't really need much of a further examination. Uh, I suppose I should say, partly because of this baffling plotting, I didn't actually hate watching Dosterman Weekend, but in a kind of train wreck sort of way. (laughs) And I do not for one second recommend anyone seek it out. Yeah, uh, another kind of wild waste of potential. And quite what any of it is. I I mean, this is one where I, I do kind of want to read the book, because how on earth is this plot supposed to make any sort of sense. It's it, it, it goes off the rails so far I don't even know if there were rails anymore you know the, the, the whole ending of it is just weird and baffling. and yeah it's just the setup. I could go with. Then everything from about, oh, about, about half an hour 40 minutes in just makes no sense at all and um, seems to have been just done out of a kind of random twist generator. Yeah a real waste of a film. Um Definitely don't watch it. No good at all. <laughs> um,
1: I mean, it, it's definitely worse than uh, the Holcroft Covenant, but it's less mundanely bad. So, yeah, there was <laughs> that kind of absolute car crash nature of it. Yeah. Um, likewise, Scott, I'm going to with Sam Beck and was quite interested in it. I don't think I've actually seen anything <laughs> of his.
0: No, I, I um, guess like me, you bought straw dogs about. Pfft, Twenty years ago now, and it's been sat on a shelf. Uh, yeah, that <laughs> and the wild bunch. Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: yeah. <laughs> but you kind know, of one of those people I've been aware of quite a bit, um, and you kind of yeah, wanted to visit at some point And like, the, this has put mm. me right off of it. Absolutely, um, yeah. Because this is not like someone like Frankenheimer who's having an off day. This is like for packing picking last film, and it's appalling. It's like, oh, really? Mm. Um, it's just yeah, you know, it, it's nonsensical.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: What, what is any of this about? Um, but honestly, I mean, everything about it is bad. The acting is, is particularly poor, and that that's got to be down to the direction that is so universally bad. Um,
0: yeah, can you think of a less impactful Dennis Hopper performance? I mean, Hopper normally gets the most out of everything. He's he's normally dependably mental, but he's. <laughs> He's a non-entity in this film. It's, it's, it's really strange. I don't know. Um, well, apparently a lot of people, um, they again of agreed to be cast in this merely because they wanted to work with Beckenbauer. I mean, yeah,
1: reduced rates and stuff, yeah.
0: Yeah, idle curiosity, I guess, more than anything else because it's certainly not because of the, the opportunities that the script and the character has, has given them. Not at all.
1: Yeah, remember you saying that he, this is kind of a, know, an anonymous Dennis Hopper performance and you're right and I didn't think I could find anything positive in this film, Scott, so there's that, thanks. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, actually, this film like it might fit his his particular brand of crazy. But no, he he he's a man with a jumper on. At some point, I guess. Yeah. So uh, yeah, but uh, I think the worst acting is Craig T Nelson, who through the entire film is acting like he's concussed. <laughs> it's really weird.
0: But I do like his defining character trait is nose karate. <laughs> Brilliant. No,
1: no. His defining character trait is not just that he knows karate; it's that when called on to use that karate in the fight in the woods at the end, the sound effects that use suggest that he's actually a bear. <laughs> 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 um, it's ludicrous, but um, it doesn't like his performance is appalling. He, he's, a, he's, well, he's concussed he's he's concussed the whole film, but it doesn't help that he's given some quite spectacularly. Oh, God, I can't even think of the right adjective. Something quite spectacularly. Whatever the appropriate word is that I can't think of here. Dialogue <laughs> right arrives at the the Tanner's house, Ruger house. The kids there notice also that the the kid and the wife had been um, gassed and kidnapped the day before, but didn't mention that to their oldest friends. <laughs> yeah, because that that's how um, friendships work. Uh, So he's got like a a three-wheeler bike, off-road bike thing. Uncle Bernie, want to go for a ride? And then Craig T. Nelson responds with, Ride? Like, really puzzled. Ride? Sure. And this is verbatim, Scott. Mm -hmm. Ride? Sure. Bike? Yeah. See? I talk like you. (laughs) That's like the weirdest line of... I heard in years later, and I, know, I was puzzling over it for ages. I'm like, no, this is... Like, ride has been a, a word for, like, going on a bike or even in a car, in some sort of vehicle, since since there weren't cars, probably since there were horses. Mm-hmm. Right? This isn't new slang that this person in the early 1980s is not going to know that a child is talking to him. It's like, Uncle Bernie, want to go for a ride? And he seems utterly confused by this. <laughs> yeah, and then... Yeah, there's so many kind of strange directorial choices, too. Like, there are two scenes in particular, or two sequences in particular. A fight in the kitchen at the end, and the car chase near the beginning, where there's just like random slow mo for reasons. <laughs> like, car with family in it, full speed. Car with Rutger Hauer, slow mo. Car with family in it, full speed. Car with Rutger Hauer going around the corner, slow mo. Car with family, full speed. Rutger Howard's car, full speed, and then just like kind of switched around like that, does seem to be providing any emotion, any idea of threat or interest or anything or speed, even. It's like, you just randomly do it. Then it happens at the end. Like, a couple of times Rutger was thrown across the table by Craig T. Nelson, and, and a couple of times it's in mm. slow motion. A couple of times it isn't. <laughs> right. This pick and pack guy is a hack. Yes. Mm. Uh, what well, this film's telling me. I mean, there are other. Kind of more minor issues like seeing the same close-up of a suppressed automatic rifle and its laser sight exactly the same shot at least three if not four or five times. That's maybe just like they needed that shot to make that scene kind of work and they had to reuse it because the end was recut and reshot. I think it's at some point. Yeah, that's more mechanical. I'll let that slide even though it's like really noticeable. uh But it's all the rest of it. Like it doesn't make a lick of sense. Things like there's footage shown of Bernie meeting with some person who's trying to try and incriminate him. Like, we want to go and do this work. You only see the back of this person, but it's clearly John Hart doing in um, a Russian accent yeah. because it's John Hart's It's an incredibly distinctive voice. Yes. Then, then he sees this same person on television later and doesn't recognise him. Hmm. <laughs> Convenient, I guess. And then yeah it's like people not acting like people, like nobody reacts to TV coming on on its own, yeah, <laughs> uh, and also there's supposed to be these friends that have been friends for decades and stuff, and there's absolutely no chemistry between them at all,
0: yes, they all instantly hate each other, <laughs> yeah, and it' very strange
1: <laughs> that's not how friendships work, you know it's like there there's yeah, <laughs> absolutely not a believable a dynamic there at all. <laughs> and then it it doesn't help I mean, it turns out actually that it's supposed to have been fake, but there's a point where you see a severed dog's head in the fridge, yes, and <laughs> and I, and actually I laughed fun, I laughed <laughs> Quite a like a drain <laughs> I was yes. cackling when I saw that because it was so bad
0: um and then it turns <laughs> out it's
1: meant to be a fake and a bad fake,
0: but still that's clearly not the effect they're going for yes um, and and also the presence of it made no sense whatsoever for any plan what's going on yeah. at all it's just, just a random thing to put in like why yeah. not yeah, the, yeah and the then fake dog head in the fridge why not yeah that's, that's going in
1: I strongly <laughs> suspect like, probably it's the last shot of the film is the dog found alive with a bandage over its nose in a kind of comedy way <laughs> I can't imagine that was pecking for I reckon that was one of the reshoots they did um, after <laughs> they sacked him um, in post production um, but yeah, although according to Sam Peckinpah, on the, well, this is the IMV trivia page, so again, take this with a, <laughs> a, a grain of salt, a pinch of salt, but, um, yeah, it's quite like straw dogs like that because I had a cat in a cupboard and this has a dog in a fridge, so they're the same.
0: Yes, that's how it works, this. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, if, you, if you have any animal in any kind of <laughs> bit of kitchen equipment, it's the same film. <coughs> it's exactly the same yeah. film.
1: I, I mean, honestly, this film did not get off on a good foot with me though, because the film begins with a saxophone. Like, oh <laughs> God! no, an eighteen eighties film with a saxophone, and, and a saxophone for some reason playing music more appropriate to some sort of light hearted romantic film. <laughs> what was going on with that? And then we move to this the surveillance footage of John Hurt's wife being killed. And I'm thinking instead, like, oh this is a horrible instead of thinking, oh this is a horrible crime, um I'm thinking, how many camera angles does the surveillance system have? Also has zooming and panning. That's a hell of a surveillance system. Why? <laughs> I, I think again, how much this has been messed about with by Peck and or something, I don't know. But once again I think the biggest culprit is his script. Um mm-hmm. Because I mean, there's an almost literal, as you know, Bob moment. Mm-hmm. Because Burt Lancaster and his um, his deputy, or whatever he is, are talking, and he literally says to him, As you know, Tanner is your number one critic, you know, yes. in the way that people don't. <laughs> uh, it's, like, it's such a, a strange film. And the other kind of irritation in the script to like Bernie, he gets some really terrible lines delivered. That's the other line. There's a principle I like to live by. The truth is a lie that hasn't been found out. Maybe you ought to bear that in mind. Maybe I ought not to, <laughs> as it's nonsensical, <laughs> pseudo profound bullshit, but you know, that's just me. Uh, yeah, so i been like, it's got all of those problems going on anyway. Then I say, like, after 30 minutes, it goes completely off the rails, and not a single thing that happened makes a lick of sense. Hmm. Right. I mean, even if you assume that, I don't know why I just didn't to kill him. I guess he wanted to embarrass him, but, um, you know, life experience ought to tell you that, you know, politicians quite often just don't have any sense of shame at all, and it's not necessarily going to affect him. Yeah. I guess he's not a politician, who wants to be. But anyway, uh, um, if you accept some things and suggest that John Hurt's plan was to get him to go on TV and be humiliated and exposed as a murderer or someone who sanctions murder. Um, on Taylor's who would have team?
0: thought? Who would have thought that the head of the CIA would sanction murders? I, I imagine how appalling people would be if they found that out. That fact that everyone has known for decades. Yes. Uh, if, if they found that out, how shocked would they be? What a bad plan!
1: Yeah. But assuming that's his, his end goal, which it seems to be. Yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> as best as we can gather from, yeah. from the evidence in front of us. Yes, but but, but
1: that being his plan. Requires Tanner being alive, <laughs> but John Hurt specifically, deliberately, and multiple times, repeatedly tries to have Tanner killed.
0: Yes, yes, yes. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs>
1: um, and then the end seems to come from a different film altogether, because suddenly it's suggesting that it's about I don't know how TV warps your perception or something, and and like, but, but that, that that's not what the rest of the film's about as much yes. as I can guess what the rest of the films, about. where did that come from? Why is this from a different film? Yes. Where does this point suddenly come from? And also, it makes no sense. Mm. It's, I can it actually passed more quickly, um, even though it's been very slightly longer, it passed more quickly mm. by watching it than the the whole Co- Covenant. Again, I think that was just conventionally rubbish. Whereas mm. this is mental and rubbish. Yes,
0: yes. It makes
1: not a lick of sense.
0: Yes, it's very much Rossbury, an espionage film, and a fever dream. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it is nuts. Um, it, it's, there is some value to be had in kind of watching it almost as a B-movie and trying to work out what on earth the, the thought process behind any of this was. It's like, wh- 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 Why were they writing this? Why, how did this get made? Um, but, yeah, it, it is definitely not a film that is worth recommending, even on that basis. Um, no, just... Uh, Unfortunately, bit of a waste of time. Zero for two in this episode, but I will. Lovely <laughs> you, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. So,
1: <laughs> also, just I can't that this is a, an accurate in- piece of information on INDB's trivia pages. But here's why you shouldn't listen to to actors. While they have entertained me a lot, and some are you kind know, of more intelligent than others, these people play let's pretend for a living, and that's mm. great good on them if they can get a job doing that and they do something that entertains me or makes me feel something that's great i love film obviously right (laughs) but actors are are very tiresome people (laughs) chris sarandon's wife was pregnant throughout the filming of this movie he said that the added tension provided his character with a little more depth
0: no no (laughs) that's a lie (laughs) yes that's the truth that has not been found out yet. Yes.
1: Also that <coughs> nice callback. That, that that's yeah. suggesting also that he has a character. Yes.
0: <laughs> and his character is slightly angry. That's that's the entire depth of his character for no particularly well, <laughs> well explained reason. He's just a bit angry. Okay. Yes. Cool. Cool story, bro.
1: <laughs> yeah, um so absolute garbage avoid. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yes, well, that will wrap us up for today. If you'd like to get in touch with us and explain any of the plots of this to us, then please do. Uh, you can do so on uh, email at podcast at or on facebook.com slash fudsonfilm or on Twitter at fudsonfilm. And until next time, take care of yourself and each other. I'll wish you goodbye. And true might do too, if he feels like it. I'm not going to pressure him into it or anything.
1: Well, Thank you make me feel bad about doing it for some reason. Fare <laughs> yeah, thee well, folks.